Reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 15, and um, I'm going to start with the first two verses of that chapter, and then read um, the parable of the lost son from verses 11 to 32. Now the, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <coughs> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country <clears throat> who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with, that, with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So... He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, been, has him safe back and sound. 
the older brother began, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for this um, wonderful and probably quite familiar story. Uh, we thank you for your love for us, that your arms are open to us, older and younger. And we pray this morning that you would warm our hearts and encourage us to celebrate at the party of your love. And we thank you that it is open to all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my guess is that most of you will have seen this, but let me just uh, remind you of an event that happened recently. An Austrian daredevil skydives from the edge of space 24 miles above Earth. Felix Baumgartner pierced the atmosphere at speeds of 800 miles per hour, apparently becoming the first skydiver to break the speed of sound. After 10 minutes, Felix reached safe ground, said to have broken records including the highest altitude skydive and fastest fall. For those of you who are listening to the recording of the sermon, we've just been watching Felix Baumgartner, and he's a famous leap from space to Earth. And as Felix um, jumped from the balloon, apparently he shouted, I'm coming home. And I'd imagine that home seemed uh, mighty attractive to him from, what was it, 24 miles up in the air, with the Earth looking, as we could see on the film, like a dinner plate beneath him. I'm coming home. And home he came, amazingly. The parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, or the lost sons, Charles Dickens called it the, uh, the best short story in literature, is a story about two young men coming home, or at least with the opportunity to come home. The great frustration, uh, but in a sense I think the, the genius of the story, is that we don't know the ending. But that's how, how it should be, because the story of the prodigal son is not so much about the coming home of the two lost sons as it is about you and me coming home. We have to be the end of the story. 
And I suppose you could say that uh, all life is like Felix's journey. We're taken into a new and dangerous place from the moment we leave our mother's womb. We had a baptism service at 9.30 when I mentioned this, and I saw the baby there, and it seemed to me that there was a sense in which uh, the baby is catapulted from the mother's womb, rather as Felix is from, the, from, from his balloon, but um, the mother didn't seem entirely convinced that the birth experience was quite the same. Uh, but you know what I mean. We are, we are launched into life, admittedly with all sorts of sophisticated and scientifically proven aids and safety suits around us, but we still have to find our way home, and it can be a perilous journey. And so I think the question that the prodigal son asks us, the story of the prodigal son asks us right at the start is, uh, have we found our way home? Have you found your way home? Is home where you are this morning? The uh, American preacher Tim Keller, who is probably the best known of all contemporary preachers at the moment, perhaps the most listened to of preachers on the web, in his brilliant analysis of the parable of the lost sons, says that human beings left to their own devices without God try to find their way home in essentially two ways. And uh, Keller calls them the way of moral conformity and the way of self-discovery. And in the parable, fairly obviously, the first way, moral conformity, is represented by the elder brother, and the way of self-discovery is represented by the younger brother. At our staff prayers uh, this week, one, of, one, one day when we were meeting for, for prayers, we do every day, I, um, I asked the staff which way they inclined to temperamentally, were they self-discoverers or moral conformists. And rather unhelpfully, but very wisely, Jason Gardner, our splendid caretaker, said, well, actually a bit of both. And that is true. The student rocker becomes the establishment's pin-up boy. Well, he actually even became prime minister, didn't he? The naughty schoolboy ends up becoming a bishop or a canon of the cathedral, whatever. We change as we change, go through our lives, we change our ways of finding home, of finding meaning for our lives. Right now, you might be inclined to moral conformity. It's much more likely in a churchgoer that that will be your inclination. But perhaps when you look back on your life, or perhaps when a midlife crisis occurs, or perhaps a trauma of some kind, uh, the rocker in you may re-emerge. Who knows? You might think, clearly some do, have I missed out on life? Life is too short for me to stay stuck in this what seems boring relationship or whatever. It's time for me to live a bit. It's time for me to escape. Amongst Jesus' listeners were both types of people, which is why I asked Pat to read the first two verses of uh, the chapter. The tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's a crucial context for the story. The Pharisees, of course, are the moral conformists, and the tax gatherers and sinners are those on the road of self-discovery. And how smugly the self-righteous Pharisees must have listened to the first part of the story. Thank God we are not like other people, they must have been thinking. The ghastly oik of a son 
impertinently demands his share of his father's estate and dissipates it in loose living, ending up in a pigsty, an awful place for anyone, but particularly awful for a Jewish lad. And even when he comes to his senses in verse 17, you see, he's not really sorry. He's still full of self-interest. When he comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's men have food to spare, and here am I starving to death? Self-interest still rules his heart. He's still self-discovering. And he heads for home on the basis that anything will be better than the pigsty. Like so many who set out on the road of self-discovery, whether it's drinks, drugs, sex, or whatever it might be, uh, they end up hating life and hating themselves. This boy's self-worth is shot to pieces, and he'll settle for any kind of job and a warm bed, even being treated as a hired man by his father. But, as we know, the father hitches up his, uh, his, his, his robe, uh, showing his legs, which is humiliating for a Jewish patriarch. He runs, which is undignified, to meet his son and embraces him. He loves him. And the boy melts into his arm, and in verse 21, we see that he truly repents. This is a great statement of what turning from sin is. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In the face of the father's love, he comes to recognize what sin is, that sin not only affects our relationship with one another, but also deeply affects our relationship with our heavenly father. He repents, and with a robe signifying a new righteousness and a ring establishing or re-establishing his family identity, he is welcomed home by the Father. He comes home, and the party begins. That part of the story we are pretty familiar with and rejoice over. But what a shock it was for the Pharisees. Their moral conformist hero now emerges into the picture. Surely his loyalty to the family business, his never putting a foot wrong, will see him warmly welcomed by his father. After all, that is his right, is it not? But while the oik starts to celebrate, the prig is left out in the cold. And the story ends with a shocking surprise. The self-discoverer is safely home, and the moral conformist is still lost. Now, this must have been a devastating moment for the self-righteous Pharisees, as it surely should be for us, too, because it's an extremely subtle point that Jesus is making, because, of course, faith in God, Christian faith, should lead to living a good life. We should be living in the right way. We should be morally upright and conformist in that sense. Christians should set an example to, the, to society of the best way to live. It's one of the main evangelistic tools that we have, if you like, that we have a quality of life, moral parameters within which we live our life, which should be attractive to the rest of society. The professing Christian who utterly throws over the moral code as the younger brother did and lives in an openly sinful and scandalous way is a major embarrassment to us as a church family. So the question we have to ask is, why does the elder brother miss out on the party? What is so wrong with his life? Why is he, in a sense, the baddie in the story, 
not the younger brother? And the answer is, of course, that while the younger brother's sinfulness kept him away from enjoying home, the older brother's very goodness stopped him enjoying the father's house. For the older brother, it was all duty and not joy. At heart, it's the difference between religion and Christianity. The prodigal came to see that he needed a rescuer. It was fairly obvious to him that he needed a rescuer, but the older brother did not think there was anything wrong with him at all, so he didn't need to be saved. God owed him a living. The father owed him a living. He could find his own way home. But how wrong he was. When we look at his character, we see that he was proud, very proud, all these things I have done. He was angry. He refused to come to the Father. He was self-righteous. He was resentful. And he was jealous of the Father's love for the younger brother. That's quite a list of sinfulness even before we get to the rest of his life, which we're not told about. He needed, you see, he needed the Father's forgiveness every bit as much as the prodigal, but his heart was hardened and embittered. We thank God, I trust we thank God, that the church is full of prodigals, is full of younger brothers. Numerous Christians have come to Christ from a life of dissipation and unbelief. One of the things that thrilled me during the Olympics was to go and stay with my daughter Laura in Hackney, where she's working in uh, a church in, the, in a city in, the, uh, in a place called Frampton Park in Hackney, and to see that her youth group is made up mostly of prodigals, mostly of kids who are coming from gangs and broken homes and difficult lifestyles and are coming to Christ. It's very challenging work, of course, but it's very thrilling, very thrilling, especially for a father to see God using his daughter in that way prodigals coming back to Christ. And perhaps amongst us here uh, this morning, even here in North Oxford, there are some who were very far away from God, but have found in Jesus forgiveness and peace and purpose and new life, all things that the younger brother found. But sadly, and perhaps gladly as well, the church is also full of elder brothers those who think that God owes them something. They do their best to obey God and keep the rules and hope and believe that it is their right that God will reward them. And when they feel that He does not, because something bad happens in their life, they are furious with God. So people think, how could you do this to me, God? When I've done so much for you, I don't deserve to have cancer. I don't deserve for this to happen to my children. I don't deserve for my marriage to fall apart. I don't deserve to lose my job. I'm a decent person. I've done my best for you, God. How could you let me down? And they rail against God. But the Father, you see, wants our love, not our duty. He wants to feast and dance and sing and celebrate with his sons and daughters. And if he has our love, if the elder son really loved his father, he would be so thrilled with him at the prodigal's return that instead of moaning and groaning, 
at the father's love for the elder son, he would have rushed off to kill the fattened calf. He would have taken off his robe and put it on his younger brother and said, it's so great to see you. He would have taken off his family signet ring and placed it on his younger brother's hand once again. Welcome home. That, that would have been the Christian response. Now, there's much more that I could say about this wonderful story, and it is very much the, 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 the favorite parable of the time. Uh, not only Tim Keller, but Michael Ramsden down the road has spoken really helpfully on the prodigal son as well. And many others have, have, have things, useful things to say, which it's worth your while reading. But the bottom line is this. Human beings, all of us, are born into an alien, hostile world characterized by sin and wickedness. And we see it all around us, and we experience it in our own lives. But our loving Heavenly Father has made it possible for us to be home amidst the pain and the sin. And that's the crucial, crucial message of the story. We can be home amidst the pain, the difficulty, and the sin. Even now, yes, now, now in this life, we are home if we are in Jesus. Later, of course, in eternity, we will enjoy the consummation of that home experience. But we can dance and sing and feast with Him now in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of Jesus. And how has He made this possible? Well, let me just leave you with this uh, thought as I close. In the, in the story, if you had been the older brother, if you had been the older brother, which is probably the one we find it easiest to identify with, quite likely anyway here in North Oxford, if you had been the older brother and the younger brother had left, what would you have done? What would you have done at that moment? Was he right to stay behind and try to earn his father's approval and thus eventually own the whole farm? Was he, voted by, was he motivated by love for his father when he made that decision and the well-being of the business? Or was it self-interest that motivated him? One day all this will be mine, so I better keep an eye on it in case it goes off the rails. Of course, what he should have done is to have gone after his brother. He should have chased after him. He should have gone even into the pigsty and embraced his brother there in the pigsty and said, brother, come home. Our father's waiting for you to come home. Come back with me. He should not have rested until he brought back to his father the son that was lost. And together they could all have feasted together. Surely that's what you would do in that situation. Surely you wouldn't have just looked after your own interests and said that good for nothing's gone, good riddance to him. Well, we have such an older brother, don't we? We have an older brother who has come from the highest heaven to the filthiest stable born of an impoverished woman in what was then a desolate corner of the Roman Empire. You see, forgiveness always involves a cost. It always involves a cost. The older brother should have gone after the younger brother and settled his debts, paid the cost, brought him home, risked his own standing at the, at the property, at the, at the farm. He should have gone. Forgiveness always involves a cost, and Jesus has paid the price of our forgiveness. That's why we're gathering this morning at the communion table, where we remember that by His blood, He rescued mankind from the terrible mess that our squandering and rebellion has got us into.
by His broken body, which we remember as we eat the bread. We remember that He paid a terrible price so that we could come home to, to, to our Father. So, you see, the story teaches us that church is not a place of religious duty, but a place of wild celebration. Church, where Jesus is Savior and Lord, is home for men and women. That's why we call our strapline now growing God's family. We are a family at home together, beginning to taste the glorious future of home in heaven. For many people, uh, I fear outside the church, church must seem as unlikely a landing place for them as the dinner plate of earth must have done for Felix as he jumped out of his balloon. But as surely as he made it back to terra firma and rather movingly fell on his knees, and who wouldn't at that moment, those who come back to the Father and fall on their knees at the feet of Jesus, as we will again be invited to do as we come and receive communion this morning, falling on our knees at the feet of Jesus, we will find life, and we will find life in all its fullness. We will taste home. We're God's family here. This is our home. So let's value our Father, let's cherish our home, and let's care for one another as brothers and sisters, for that is what we are. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with all sorts of uh, issues in our lives, many, many things that call for our attention, that distract us from having our focus on your love and on following Jesus. But we thank you that your arms are open to us. We thank you that the front door of your house is open to us. We thank you that the music has started and the party has begun. And we pray that whatever happens to us in our lives, whatever battles we're facing, in some way we would experience that party today. We would relax in your love, that we would know your presence and your rule over our lives, making everything not just bearable, but life a joyous celebration of being a child of God. We pray that for one another as we gather at your table this morning. Amen.